Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 2. And though we will be focusing only on verses 17 through 18, for context, we'll begin reading in verse 10. So Hebrews 2, beginning in 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 18, once again, God's holy word. Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's for the reading of God's word. May bless it to us. Let us pray. So who do you call when you need help? Well, we can find help in all sorts of places, though many of us have that one person that you can always count on. Now, as kids, this is often our parents. Mom has the answers or dad will fix it. Though when we get older, our helpers may become coaches, a boss, a mentor, a professor, or a friend. Of course, nowadays, more of us are turning to just Google and YouTube. What other movies has that actor been in? Well, Google will tell you. How do you adjust your hot water heater? There's a YouTube for that. Though, wherever we look for help, we do so because we have the confidence that they can actually give us a hand. That is, you don't ask a Shakespeare scholar how to do calculus. You don't seek out a golfer about rock climbing. No, a helper is one who is both competent and experienced in the area that you're struggling with. Also, though, a helper does need to be nice enough to actually answer your question. That person might have your solution, but if they refuse to help and mock you for being incompetent, then you're not going to reach out to them. Thus, the best helper is both competent and kind which is precisely what Jesus is to us, which makes him our best aid and ever reliable for us, especially in our most important need. So the author of Hebrews here has been fleshing out since he opened how the eternal Son of God was made lower than the angels for a time. Thus he set forth how it was fitting for God to perfect Jesus through suffering, And how by his death, Jesus destroyed the devil with his lethal power. In this way, Jesus liberated us from the enslaving paranoia of death. And as he leads us to glory, Jesus proudly names us his brothers and sisters. 
Christ partook of our mortality to make us immortal in him. By his death, Jesus vanquished death. Yet at this point in this argument, we might still be scratching our heads a little bit on how death can defeat death. Now, we did point out last week how scripture, in scripture, like cures the like, or like helps the like. But this truth doesn't drill down on exactly why Christ's death plundered us from the devil's dungeon. So, to assuage our curiosity, or better, to apply to our soul, balm, the author now unveils the secret to how Jesus' death shattered those iron fetters of death. Thus, as he furthers his arguments, he says, For this reason, in order to help the kids of Abraham to throw down the devil, it was necessary for him to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now, this sets forth the legal and moral duty and necessity To be triumphant, Jesus had to perform a legal requirement. He had to complete a lawful obligation. That is, Jesus was not made like us out of mere convenience. It wasn't optional or just for kicks. Instead, it was matter of law and obedience. Now, Jesus submitted to this obligation freely, voluntarily, but it was still necessary to fulfill all righteousness that he become like us and like us in every respect. And yet, what is the full force of this every respect? Was Jesus an exact copy of us in everything? Well, it's not hard for us to come up with some differences between us and Jesus. As the author himself will later point out, Jesus did not sin. He was not and is not a sinner as you and I are, a very significant divergent from us. Jesus, though, also did not inherit our corrupt nature from Adam. Since he did not have a human father, Jesus was not dead in sin or depraved in the inclination of his will. Likewise, Christ willingly took on our humanity. It was his choice. Jesus was not born under the curse without a choice like you and I are. So there are differences between us and Jesus. However, the author here is underscoring the similarities of which there are many. For one, Christ was true man. He took on our full human nature with all its weaknesses and limits. The divine son becoming incarnate is a smidgen like Superman losing his powers. To give up your ability to fly would be an obnoxious inconvenience. Second, Jesus possesses all of our human affections and dispositions. He felt like us. He experienced the frustrating fluctuations of emotions. Third, he became vulnerable to being tempted and tested. And finally, Jesus opened himself to suffering and the misery of pain. The divine nature cannot suffer temptation, but the human nature can and does. So there are ways that Jesus was not like us, but in all the chief ways, he resembled us and our humanity. And the son taking to himself our humanity served a purpose. 
He became a man to do a job that only a man can do. He slipped on our human nature in order to be a priest, to be our high priest. Now, the priesthood of our Savior has been hinted at a few times since the opening of this epistle. But this is the first explicit mention of Jesus as priest. And the author underlines that the incarnation was for the purpose of his priesthood. And in this regard, priesthood, at least a bit, differs from prophet and king. Now, sure, in the Old Testament, prophets and kings also had to be chosen from among the people of Israel. Thus, the Son is the prophet of the last days, and Jesus is the royal heir of David's crown. And yet, God, in the Old Testament, is lauded purely as the speaker of the word, a prophet, and he's praised as the king of kings. In one sense, God himself can be prophet and king. Though priestly virtues are not ascribed to God so much in the Old Testament. Within the DNA of the office, the priest must be a man. And this is due to the fact that a priest represents first other humans. The job of the priest is to bring people closer to God and within the proper state. As you know, in order to represent someone, you have to stand with them. Thus, it's not really fitting for a German to represent the French, or a Padres fan can't properly represent the Dodgers. Now, kings can rule over foreign peoples. Prophets can be uh, preached to strangers. But priests must share in the same nature as the people he brings before God. Thus, Jesus was obligated to to be made like us to qualify as our priest. Of course, as it is with any career, you can do a good job or a bad one. One may be well qualified or poorly so. Thus, Jesus was made like us to obtain and exercise the attributes of an effective priest. His putting on our nature equipped him first then to be merciful. Now, in the Old Testament, this virtue of mercy is most often paired with this opposite to be wrathful. And it is nearly exclusively ascribed to God. As it says in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God, of, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Likewise, mercy is the pity and compassion towards the guilty or miserable to not give them what they deserve. Out of mercy, you remove the judgment that they earned to relieve the guilt and pain that they feel. Now, there's nothing lacking in God's mercy. His mercy is the perfect knowledge of our predicament and his compassion not to punish us. And yet in Christ, this mercy takes on an added dimension in that he felt what we do. Jesus tasted the agony of the curse like us. To receive mercy from one who's been through what you have increases its warmth and affinity. 
For example, a man can show compassion to his wife for giving birth. This is proper and beautiful. But mercy from another mother adds a touch of understanding and intimacy. A guy cannot say that he felt what his wife went through, but a woman can. Thus, by becoming like us, Jesus' mercy towards us contains deeper currents of attachment, warmth, and togetherness. His mercy exhibits solidarity with us. And the next quality that our Lord demonstrated in becoming our priest is being faithful. This is the reliable and steadfastness to perform the duty or to fulfill the office with excellence. Now, faithfulness is used both for humans and God in the Old Testament. With God, it especially refers to his true word and him keeping his promises. That is, the Lord always does what he says, and he is 100% reliable. For Jesus, his faithfulness is his unfailing obedience to execute the office of priest. And as you know, faithfulness only shows its maturity when it's tested. When things are easy, faithfulness doesn't mean as much. But if the hurdles are tall and the challenge is severe, then faithfulness sparkles like a diamond. Thus, by all the toils and snares of his earthly ministry, Jesus exercises his faithfulness towards us. He didn't give up on us when things got tough. Jesus was not late when we needed him to be on time. He did not flake at that crucial moment upon the cross. He promised to love us to the end, and Jesus fulfilled this towards you to the uttermost. Indeed, this covers a second dimension of Christ being a faithful priest. If someone is faithful, then it makes them also trustworthy. Their fidelity earns our trust and makes them a steadfast anchor for us to rely upon. Thus, Jesus' fidelity creates for us a rock-solid foundation for our faith. We can trust in Jesus with the certainty that he does not fail or fall short in the least. And this is the same feature that belongs to mercy. Being merciful, Jesus is the one that we can reliably rest upon for mercy. That is, you don't seek mercy from someone who is pitiless or wrathful. If a kid scrapes his knee, he will go to the parent that will give him the most compassion. If dad says about his bloody knee, rub some dirt on it, But mom will rub on some pain relief uh, cream, put on a nice band-aid, and sit him on the couch with ice cream. The kid's going to run to mom. And so the generous mercy of Jesus makes us love run to his loving embrace and kind pity. However, these wonderful attributes of Christ as our priest do not merely woo us to his side. Instead, They also serve another purpose. Jesus became our merciful and faithful high priest in order to make propitiation for our sins. 
these pristine attributes qualify Jesus to deal with sin. Now, the word here for propitiation belongs to the Old Testament sacrificial system, and it encompasses the entire sacrificial process to appease God's wrath, to expiate sin, and to render the relationship between God and his sinful people as one forgiven and reconciled. It is the shedding of blood and the ritual application of the blood to to judicially render sin and guilt paid for. To provide atonement for sin as our high priest, Jesus willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice. He dabbed his blood to wash away our sin. He offered up his body as sweet smoke to satisfy the just wrath of God. For as you know, our sin creates offense with God and a debt to justice. But the sacrificial death of Christ pays our bill and appeases fury. Indeed, this is the heart of our Lord's priestly service to provide atonement. It's the legal foundation for our salvation. And it alone deals with sin as the power of death. Indeed, by this line, the author now defines for us how death can conquer death. For the sting of death is sin. Sin unleashed death into the world, and the axe that sin wields is death. Thus, if sin is the cause of death, if it is the tumor that spreads mortality through our bodies, then you can only stop death by cutting out sin. Death is the punishment. Sin is the crime. Thus, if the crime is paid for and forgiven, then the punishment is declawed and moot. Hence, Jesus vanquished death by curing sin. By his fidelity, Jesus fulfilled the pristine obedience to satisfy justice for us and to affect our reconciliation with the Father. By his mercy, Christ turned away the wrath and he did not judge us as we deserve. With his priestly sacrifice, Jesus cut the heart out of death so that he has no more power over us. When we are guilty, death oppresses us with whip and chain. But being forgiven and justified in Christ, death becomes less than a mosquito. It can't even nibble upon us. This is the epicenter of our salvation and Christ's work for us as our high priest. It is the judicial and sacrificial atonement for our sin. And the blessings that flow from it are manifold. Chiefly, it, is actually, it actually is the accomplishment of our salvation. But on top of this, though, the priestly work of Christ qualifies him to be our helper, the fountainhead of encouragement and strength for us. As the author goes on to state, because he himself suffered when tempted. Now this suffering of Jesus includes his earthly humiliation and particularly his death upon the cross. 
Yet the author here is focused on how suffering particularly relates to temptation or testing. That is Jesus suffered, uh, suffered, how, or that is how Jesus suffering, uh, tested his fidelity and how he was tempted during his persecution. So then, how was Jesus tempted while suffering? Well, for one, his lowly estate in our sin-infested world um, entailed the inherent weakness of his human nature. As you know, when you are enduring a trial, you can hit your limit and quit merely because you cannot keep going. That is, you're too hungry to keep your diet. You want nothing else but to pray, but your body falls asleep. Your desire for good is sincere, but your resolve to pass the test is immovable, but you just don't have it in you. It's too painful. You're too exhausted. This is the natural frailness of humanity, and this Jesus suffered. He was tested by the obnoxious weakness of the human body, but he never quit. Secondly, Jesus was tempted by others not to suffer. Think about it. The crowds, his followers, his family, the apostles, and his enemies all told Jesus no suffering. Even Peter rebuked Jesus for talking about the cross. This is the peer pressure of shame, the whispers that you're too good to suffer. When everyone is telling you not to suffer, that it's not proper for you, this makes keeping on monumentally harder. Everyone in Jesus' life was insisting that he take the easy way to avoid the arduous path. But Jesus withstood their evil suggestions and remained steadfast in the way of the cross. Third, Satan obviously tempted Jesus concerning his suffering. With a profane covenant offer, the devil promised Jesus that he could have all the glory and authority over everything now without the pain of the cross. Just kneel to the devil, and eternal glory would be Christ apart from death and suffering. This is kind of like the lure of a credit card, Just charge it now for immediate pleasure. Don't bother with saving or working double shifts or actually buy it. But Jesus was not impatient. He did not swerve from that painful path. Finally, Jesus felt and endured the test of being deserted by God upon the cross. For most of us, we have that one person that if they are with us, We can stand firm. If your spouse is on your side or your best friend, then you can resist the world. But if that single anchor turns from you, then we crumble like a cracker and melt like butter on a hot sidewalk. So the Father was the one apart from whom Jesus did nothing. The unity and in-sync rhythm between the Father and the Son is deeper and more eternal than we can even fathom. But upon the cross, the Father turned his back to the Son, and Jesus had to go it alone. To stay true when all the others go dark 
is platinum fidelity. There is no higher perfection and strength, and Jesus showed himself to be such when he suffered through temptation. And because Jesus weathered all these storms, he's able to help you. Having been tempted and tested in all the ways we experience, and to an even greater extent, And having succeeded in all his tasks, having passed every test, Jesus has the competency and skill to aid us when we are tempted. Jesus felt and endured the miserable experience of pain, shame, and loneliness. But Jesus does not forget the pain. And so he is moved by the strength of his heart and the readiness of his mind to come alongside us for relief and success. As your priest, Jesus tells you, I felt the pain, and I don't want you to. I passed the test, and I want you to succeed in and with me. Indeed, the help of Jesus is administered on many levels to us. Sometimes Jesus removes all the pain and struggle with an overwhelming mercy. At other times, he imparts to us the energy to keep going. At other times, Jesus increases our own fidelity and resolve to stiff-arm temptation to remain on the straight and narrow path. Because he felt every painful test and Past each potent temptation, Jesus can provide us with the help as those who are being tempted. Note that the author characterizes us as those who are being tempted. We live in a state of temptation. The path that we tread is covered with snares, traps, and billboards to turn aside. We are those who are vulnerable to evil. And there is a mighty pull on us to give in to temptations. This includes the lure not to suffer. It's the attraction of the sin itself. It is the prospect to give up on Christ and the path of the cross to walk down the easy and paved way of the world. You can stroll down South Beach with the world, or you can hike the rock-infested trail up the mountain of self-denial with Jesus. The magnetic attraction towards ease and compromise is constant and robust. How can we endure such temptations? How is it possible for us to pass the test? Well, you can because Christ is for you and he's your ever-present help. Jesus went before us. He experienced all that you experienced, and he knows just what you need at just the right moment. He is merciful. His compassion and pity towards you knows no bounds or limits. And Christ is faithful. He's always by your side. Jesus is never a no-show. He's never tardy or unequipped. Therefore, our chief duty is to call upon Christ. Our surviving temptations, our passing the test of faith, isn't looking to ourselves to muscle on, but is casting ourselves 
upon Christ who is able. We press on by resting in the faithful Christ, by calling out to him in prayer, and by finding our confidence and comfort in the mercy and faithfulness of our high priest. Additionally, though, the primary way Jesus helps us through temptation and suffering is by forgiveness. He executes his priesthood by making atonement for all our sins and by applying to us the unceasing fountain of forgiveness. For at the end of the day, honesty is clear. We will not endure every temptation. We will never pass any test with a perfect score. Even our best resistance against temptation is 90% good and 10% not good. Thus, the mercy of Jesus keeps us from falling permanently into temptation, and it keeps forgiving us in our regular trip-ups. You know it to be true. Daily, we stumble in sin. Weekly, we scrape our knees up in temptation. Poor performance is the standard for us. Therefore, Jesus sustains us with trustworthy and merciful forgiveness that is new every morning. Christ's loving pardon is served up to you fresh each and every day. Opened up by his single death for sin once and for all, the life-giving waters of Christ's forgiveness wash you and revitalize you constantly. Like fresh bread baked new every morning for breakfast, so Jesus' mercy and forgiveness is your nourishment that we live by daily. Thus, dear saints, may you never cease looking to and resting in Jesus Christ, your beloved, merciful, and faithful high priest who is your perfect and never-ending help and your constant source of forgiveness. Thus, let us ever love and praise Jesus Christ now and forever to the glory of the Father and the Spirit forever. Amen. Let us pray.